Hello, and welcome to the new Spectator PM podcast. My name is Luther Abel, and I'm here with Aubrey. Aubrey, how are you today? I'm doing well. Just rounding up my week, which has been really nice. So how about you? It's Friday, and I'm so <laughs> glad it is. I don't know. You think for writing for a living, it's it's easy until your brain is just a not even a sponge, a wrong sponge <laughs> on Fridays, and you're trying to put sentences together, and it's usually a failed effort, but uh, we do what we can. Yeah, right around like 3 p.m., usually Lucy sends me a list of things to edit, and I'm like, yes, I don't have to, <laughs> just have to think about how other people put sentences together, not how I did. <laughs> yes, the seat of judgment is sometimes really comfortable compared to <laughs> yeah. writer. So uh, you've been writing about uh, Bidenomics a little bit recently. Uh, could you tell me what's going on there? Yeah. So, I mean, I recently did a video yesterday about it um, that talked about, so the poverty level uh, reports just came out on Tuesday from the Census Bureau. Um, and they found that um, supplemental poverty, the supplemental poverty measure has like almost doubled and poverty among children has more than doubled. Um, I think both are coming in at 12.4% right now, which is pretty incredible when you think about it. Um, and Biden, of course, come, came out and blamed congressional Republicans because they wouldn't um, endorse his extremely expensive child tax credit expansion that he wanted. Um, and all the while, all, all, like completely ignoring the fact that like COVID policies are coming to an end and like everything that, like all of the handouts that they've been giving people, they're no longer giving people. And um, yeah, that had a really real impact. And the fact that inflation just totally skyrocketed last year and like eggs, I'm sure you remember, were super expensive. Gas was super expensive. Like basic everyday items were super expensive, which I'm sure didn't help. So yeah, 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 and items that we are we're most likely to notice, I think, uh, yeah. where when these items go up fifty percent, it may not actually matter as much in one's ledger as you think. But when you're filling up your car for forty and suddenly it's sixty, seventy, yeah, you become aware of economic pressures in a way that it wouldn't as quickly if it were a gas bill or something. And uh, even that is profound sometimes. Yeah. But uh, it was interesting to look at the information on the child tax credit um, and this child poverty rate because it went right back to where it was pre-COVID. Mm -hmm. It wasn't the worst thing to ever happen. It was just that $2,000 takes someone from just at the cusp of out of poverty to out of poverty. And there's a lot of kids who live at that line, which uh, is unfortunate, but their living circumstances don't change as much as the Biden administration would like to make it sound. Um, and Biden, of course, has not really answered the question of how one would continue spending people out of poverty. Uh, right. Because if it doesn't change the way people are living, like at that point, you're just moving the poverty line up by $2,000. Right. So, 
<laughs> which isn't exactly helpful, although it looks good on paper, which is really what Bidenomics is about, right? Like it's about looking good on paper temporarily, at least until 2024. And yeah, it's sort of like pulling out a Jenga piece and then sprinting away. And when it falls over, blaming it on the person who's still standing next to the tower. That's, um, that's how I see him doing it. Uh, yeah. Uh, anything else there? Um, I mean, not much. I, there are a few like Biden economic policies that are coming up about to expire to keep an eye out on. Like, for instance, um, the student loan payment forgiveness thing that Biden's been fighting for the last few years um, is... I mean, people are going to have to start paying for their student loans in October. So that it'll be really interesting to see how that impacts the economy, especially since Americans are already like. Yeah. And uh, Americans with student loan debt have not been required to pay this for what, three years now? Yeah. yeah. Three and a half years. It's like his entire presidency. Right. So. And what that does to the electorate, but also to American spending, because that's going to account for hundreds of dollars a month for a lot of college graduates or college attendees. Um, right, which is, um, I mean, a huge number of Americans. And I mean, like most people didn't like hear that and go, oh, there's no interest on my loan. So I'm just going to start paying it off now while I can. Like most people were like, let me use that money to like get myself set up or buy extra clothes or something, you know. Yeah, and there was some studies put into this, and I'm not going to be able to tell you. I believe Gallup had something where Americans were not using that money that they're saving on student loans for anything other than material consumption. Like Savings were not going up, and actually credit card debt has been jumping quite significantly recently. Uh, it was just goofing and going on vacation and <laughs> right. to yeah. a conservative was like, no, use the time. You're, you're effectively getting what 0% interest here. Just cut it off. Like you could be saving so much money over the next 30 years, paying these uh, loans down while interest is not uh, being charged you. And as we've seen in many other instances, the American spending public um, does not always make the most wise decisions. Right. Well, and I mean, for a little bit there, it looked like, you know, it, it looked like Biden would forgive student loans, at which point it's like, well, if you paid your federal student loans and Biden then forgave them, like, you just, you know, wasted hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars. Paying yeah, and that really chafed my chaps, uh, having been in the Navy for six years to get... <laughs> kind of uh, proactive student loan forgiveness or uh, the right. VA bill. And then to leave the university, having done those six years and find out that all sorts of people could uh, just get that for having offered nothing to their country is, uh, well, I, I do wonder if it did impact to some degree recruitment numbers. If young Americans are being told, no, the government is going to forgive your debts. Because let's be honest, a lot of people want to say that people join the military completely out of patriotism. It's not true. It's one of the factors 
and it's the best factor, but these are people coming from lower middle class backgrounds who quite rightly want to serve the country while earning uh, the ability to go to school debt free and to have this direct offer to a 17 or 18 year old, you can do a hard thing and possibly get a GI bill. It's not guaranteed. Um, or you can just go to school, rack up debt and don't worry, daddy government will take care of you. Well, <laughs> you're 17 years old. I mean, I, that's a, that's a pretty easy, um, math equation to do. Uh, and then you go to school and the rug gets pulled out from under you, but Biden sets it up where the Supreme Court looks like the bad guy on this. Right. And yeah. so it, it was a jerk move from the start and un unconstitutional, as we found out. Uh, but my concern is that Biden will not be the one punished for this. Right, right. Yeah. Well, and then like as a Hillsdale graduate, like I didn't take out student loans. I actually did take out loans. So like. I'm like, well, that that was nice. I'm like all everybody at Hillsdale was like, well, we're still going to be paying our loans <laughs> for college all the way through. <laughs> Yay. It, it's better that way it, I mean, to, to enter an agreement, a contract and know the bounds of that contract is so much better than to have the rules changed every other year. Oh, yeah. At least it seems to me it's kind of like having an adjustable rate mortgage. Uh, it sounds great when you start out, but then when rates go up, which they will, or things change, then you're left holding the bag. Consistency with finance is the best. Uh, although when you're looking at 50 grand in debt, maybe it doesn't feel that <laughs> way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, speaking of big government spenders. Uh, Mitt Romney announced that uh, he's looking to retire at the end of his term. And I wrote about that a little bit for the Spectator PM newsletter, which uh, all of you should subscribe to. It's pretty much the greatest thing in the written word. Uh, so Aubrey, myself, and uh, Ellie Gardy all contribute to that. And uh, we hope you've been enjoying it as much as we've enjoyed writing it. Uh, but my beef with Mitt is that he was the first politician I ever voted for, and he is a man you just couldn't get excited about because he thought he was better than his peers and probably a better man uh, than most Americans, which, I mean, objectively, yeah, maybe, but you shouldn't exude that thought or communicate that to others. You can say it to your family in private, but the frustration with Mitt uh, and his style of GOP was that it just did not comport with what Americans in 2011, 2012 uh, really wanted, where this was the heyday of uh, the Tea Party fervor and there, there was a chance for real small government, and he, he enjoyed benevolent governance. And I think coming from a background where there is a competent 
central dispenser of charity, such as the uh, Church of Latter-day Saints. I can sympathize with thinking that the government can do what private institutions can accomplish. I think this is also an issue for, for some Catholics who lean left, where because the Catholic Church is so good with your donated dollar, they think the same way about tax dollars and the federal government, where the organization I'm most familiar with is great, so why wouldn't this other organization that if you squint kind of looks the same, um, might be able to do the same thing. Uh, squint pretty hard, yes. But I see that even in uh, some strains of Lutheranism, uh, Calvinism, you you know what you're familiar with, and then you cast that out into the wider, wider world. Uh, I also think what... that that comes from like a an older idea that like institutions are going to do like the best thing with your money. Like I know, especially more recently, like many Catholics have become less than excited about donating to certain causes within the Catholic church because they don't trust like what the sure. are going to do with it. And I mean, like, obviously many Catholics will still donate to their diocese. They trust their diocese to do the right thing, but they not necessarily like every charity group, and a lot of Catholics will do a substantial amount of research before like ever, you know, sending a, a penny. Now, I mean, those are Catholics who are probably more educated than, or like care more about it than most people, but. Sure. And I think the more one donates, the more likely you are, because I mean, you're invested in the end product that right. much more if you're donating a large sum of cash. Um, then someone who's donating, donating $20 a week, just because that's, you know, what you do. Uh, but anyway, back to <laughs> Matt. I'm excited for him that he's retiring, uh, because there isn't really a place for him in the Republican party. And especially if we're just looking at what the u.s senate delegation from the gop looks like i think we will get a better candidate out of utah which is quite red uh than mitt romney uh so i'm glad he had a successful run wish him the best happy retirement um and please stay retired i think <laughs> is the way it is and that that's I mean, like Fine. At least he's retiring. Like I think Nancy Pelosi announced that she's running again, which like she is. She should she should just go and retire, hang out with grandkids, like just do your thing. And, and as I wrote in the piece, I, what Mitt did again, thinking that he's better than most others, which may be true, is he said something to the effect of, "It's time to let the next generation have it. Yeah, I'm going to retire. I'm going to be the." Uh, shining example here. So Trump, Pelosi, McConnell, uh, Biden, let's, let's move on. Um, so he got to make a, an ethical stand, a moral stand. And well, I, I think I, he did that's so. a good point. Perfectly. Like everybody's talking about 
the gerontocracy right now. So to like to say, like I'm go not going to be a part of that is like perfect timing for as far as he's concerned. So yeah, sometimes things just work out in politics so that <laughs> he can move on and it be a good time for everyone. Awesome. Glad to see it. Uh, so we were before the show, we were talking about least favorite woke terms. And uh, would you mind offering one to the audience and listeners, please do write in with your least favorite woke terms. I'm sure there are <laughs> endless. I mean, so many to choose from. Yeah, I think one that I recently saw that kind of bothers me is it's not necessarily a woke term, but it's like the, the they're uh, like attempting to move away from like the terms like master bedroom or master suite under like the guise of like, you know, it brings up memories of slavery or whatever. Like nobody believes that, you know, it has like, just because you are in a master bedroom that somehow you're superior to everybody else. Like it's just the name for a room. <laughs> yeah. It seems, uh, Fairly simple. And even like in mechanics where you have a master cylinder and a slave cylinder, it's oh, yeah, just yeah. the relationship between the mechanical items. Like there's <laughs> the master cylinder does not go out and purchase on auction a bunch of cylinders for itself. It's just that one drives the other and that we can't look past human fallibility to obviously different things in our environment is bizarre um but that one's probably going to take off because hgtv started doing it and hgtv runs the interior world uh for better or for worse <laughs> yes uh my least favorite i'm thinking about it now is that even during football we have to say there are three people who made that that tackle or uh, talking about obviously male or female spaces, but having to use person or people instead of three men made the tackle. And I think it's because announcers are used to commentating on other things. And so they want to be careful. But it's like, no, specificity matters here. There's no reason to use uh a vague word especially if people are mostly listening like just say what something is it should not be this difficult and it really takes you out of the moment because it's just obnoxious like it's this even if it's a subconscious bend to woke impulse it takes seemingly conservative events and makes them something else. Right. And I mean, like, like, especially with like football or whatever, there's an aspect of like manliness to it. And but by using the word person, you like, you totally undermine that subconsciously even, which. Yeah. It's like, oh, they're just non-entities. They're these. Just. Gnostic bodies bouncing around. <laughs> I don't know. It's just, and I don't want to have to be aware of these things. Maybe that's the worst part. Like the the latest um, PGA video game, the most recent golf video game, says they made a great drive 
no matter if you choose a man, woman, or some other category, when you make your character, it's always just they. And it's like you're being woke and cheap at the same time. This is the worst combination. I paid $60 for this sucker. Come on, <laughs> just spend a little time. Uh, and you see this, this even on Facebook or LinkedIn where uh, they commented this. And they're like, you've asked my sex uh, before. You know it's he. Right. But you just say that. I don't know. I'm a cranky old man at 29. I expect <laughs> to get crankier and older as time goes on. Uh, did any other uh, any other words come to you as I was yakking? Um, no, I feel like I don't know. I, I think part of the problem with being uh, like a member of Gen Z is that you grow up with the terms and you don't really think about them or notice them. I I know we were talking about this earlier. Like some of the interns will use you know, they or them when they're not supposed to. And it's just, it's like, it's not a conscious, it's not a conscious decision. You just do it. And then later you're like, wait a second. Like, that's not right. <laughs> Correct. And even when you alter or edit these pieces, sometimes the interns don't really understand why the change was made. It's like, right. oh no, we've lost. We've lost. Well, and just as like, a young person, you're trying to please everybody. Yes. I mean, and and you're not trying to, you know, come out really strong on one side or the other before you really have, at least if you're smart at all, not trying, you know, not trying to like be like, this is my opinion and I'm going to die on this hill because you're young and you don't know anything. And well, so right. And you're young and you want to keep options open for yourself. Um, right, right. For a young writer, you don't know where you're going to end up yet. And you don't want to be pigeonholed into the sort of crank reactionary at the age of 22. Right. And uh, that seems well, there to be are things like friends of mine have said in college that essentially mean that they're never going to get a job in certain industries. It's like, well, you're, you know, you're near late teens, early 20s, and your scope of things that you can do with your life is rapidly narrowing. So, yeah, I, I reject that generally. I think young people should tell themselves they can get into all sorts of industries uh, that may seem blocked uh, at first. But it does feel that way oftentimes. Like, yeah. how could I possibly make it? And even if you do get the job, to live in a progressive milieu, uh, milieu that expects these um, concessions, uh, these vocabulary concessions, wears on a body and mind. Like, how long can you put up with speaking woke? I don't know. I did four years of it at college and it just about killed me. Uh, that's why I <laughs> write and edit for conservative outlets because I just can't, I can't do it. Uh, and when you're writing even for the AP or the New York Times, uh, especially New York Times or something that should be down the middle like the AP, the, uh, the style guide expects you to do yeah. and alter things to a progressive ear. And uh, some people can do that. Some conservatives can 
can change enough for that or softly push back against it. But it's difficult. It's a battle every day because you don't want to be the odd man out, no, uh, especially as, as a young 20 uh, professional. That's tough. That's really tough. Uh, but speaking about young writers, uh, you have an article that uh, really caught your eye today. Yeah, uh, our fall intern, Matthew, recently wrote about um, college professors and why they tend to be left-leaning. And I just thought it was a, it's a really insightful piece. Um, he's a great writer. Um, and so, yeah, it was a good read. Yeah, and what uh, struck you most about the piece? Um, he pulls from a lot of sources and he's really good at like thinking a, a little bit about, I guess, um, and he takes an issue that I think a lot of conservatives discuss all the time. And he kind of, he doesn't just go at it the way most conservatives go at it, which is really great. And he also like, he makes a really good point at the end, like professors really need to like recognize that they don't know things like the one of the biggest problems in academia right now and i think more generally among people who have phds um, or who don't sometimes is that they seem to think that they know everything and then they don't ever like stop and consider oh wait you know maybe maybe i'm wrong about this um yeah i i like i was blessed with really great professors who were humble enough but um yeah, and you attended Hillsdale? I did, yeah. You did. And I know, like, I, I'm part of Intercollegiate Studies Institute, and as part of that, I've attended some of their conferences and met with kids from, like, Princeton and Yale and Harvard, and these kids are, like, really, like, they struggle with their professors all the time in a way that, like, I never had to struggle with mine, which is just a huge blessing. But it was, like, it really opened my eyes, like, attending those conferences and being like, oh, not everybody has my experience and universities are far more left-leaning than many of the students who go there. Yes. Uh, and it seems to be mostly coming from the administration. I mean, we write about this frequently that there are all sorts of uh, departments or really bureaus uh, at these universities that exist pretty much to enforce conformity. Right. Uh, and professors are squishy creatures by nature. Uh, if they weren't squishy, they'd be doing something that made more money generally. <laughs> uh, <laughs> whether it's uh, economics or analysis, I, these are incredibly intelligent people who wanted to stay in school. And that's a certain kind of person. Uh, at Lawrence, which is a progressive institution, there are plenty of professors who one-on-one -on -one would be willing to have really open conversations. But when it came to what the administration wanted, um, and discussing among their colleagues, they were not willing to make any sort of stand towards the center. Uh, it was just chasing one another to get as far left as possible, even if it really wasn't what the professor believed. And the professors who didn't do that mostly stayed quiet because it just wasn't worth the fight. Um, because as with almost any other group of people, 
95% of people just want to exist, get along, um, all great. And then there's like 5% of diehards one way or the other, uh, who really want everyone to do things, uh, their way. And that that's what you're stuck with at the universities. And so speaking with those in the profession, anyone who is center or to the right says this is a doomed enterprise and I have tenure and I'm going to ride this out. But when I was asking as a freshman or a sophomore, should I be getting into academics? I like teaching. I'm interested in these subjects. I said, hey, no, <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't waste your time uh, because there probably won't be a job for you. And even if there was a job, you wouldn't want it. Yeah, and really with the Hillsdale, same thing. It was like, I, I mean, I thought about going for a master's or PhD in history. And essentially there are advice is like, well, if, if somebody isn't going to pay for it, for you to go, don't do it. And don't expect to get a job yes. teaching. Like there just aren't that many jobs teaching, especially history, but. Yeah, the uh, consensus was if it happens by accident, great for you, uh, but otherwise, <laughs> Go do something that doesn't take 10 years of your life after your undergrad. Okay. Fair enough. On we go. And uh, that's what pushed me into journalism was, well, how can I still read a lot, talk a lot and write a lot without uh, having to go to school and not getting a job? Well, I can become a journalist and <laughs> say all the same things, but with way less education. <laughs> so ever so little bit more. Not by much, though. <laughs> yeah. But to be paid more without doing all those years of school, hallelujah. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, you're, you're not paying off student loans on. Yeah, exactly. Being yeah. on the poverty line without debt is much better than being on the poverty line with debt. <laughs> Fun fact for you listeners. Take my <laughs> wisdom with you, please. Uh, so the piece that stood out to me was Bruce Bauer's letter about LGBT and how there is this uh, schism between the L's, the G's, and the B's, and then the T's, uh, where one's sexual orientation is fundamentally different than assuming that you are not the sex that you were since time immemorial, since you were a twinkle in your father's eye, as my mom would say. Um, that when the, the movement uh, was an outcast, these sorts of things were politically convenient, where it was people with general interests in changing discussion about uh, gender, sexual interest, that sort of thing, where they could get together and all kind of push towards the same direction. But now as the movement has institutional power. Um, this natural fracture is expressing itself. And uh, so Bruce's piece is about the log cabin Republicans, um, gay Republicans uh, group, and how it's honoring a transgender indi individual and his Bruce's disagreement with this. Um, and the difficulty in this, because they, the broader group 
uh, were allies for so long that there are, like any nasty sort of split, it gets really ugly uh, quite quickly. And I think Bruce does just a, ma a masterful job, there's that word, masterful, of um, expressing what what's right about drawing a line between that B and the T. Uh, what did you think, Aubrey? Anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was interesting. I guess, I mean, as somebody who doesn't agree with any of those lifestyles, I've always thought like, I, I have always lumped them up in one group together and it, it never occurred to me that like maybe these people like just because somebody's a homosexual doesn't mean that they think that you know you can switch genders or like gender is fluid like those two things don't necessarily equate I mean you could argue that ideologically one could lead into the other but that doesn't mean that the people think that way and I yeah it was a it was an insightful piece into I mean, I admire Bruce a lot as a writer. He's a fantastic writer. He's got, and he thinks very deeply about subjects, even if I don't agree with him all the time. Um, and yeah, I, yeah, it was just a really interesting piece to like think about and go, okay. So it re think about the way I approach those issues as well, a little bit, you know, in my writing. Right, it, it's nuanced. Um when so often we're used to that coalition being monolithic. Um, right. Well, and I think more recently, like it's the trans individuals that have kind of really taken the reins on the whole, like pushing that whole agenda, right? Like they're the ones who want to trans the kids. They're, you know, they're the ones who are advocating for expensive surgeries and, you know, all of that stuff or or you know like taking it into schools like it's those individuals it's you know not necessarily gays or anybody else in the community right and then if you are a conservative who uh has homosexual attraction to see a group that you saw as you know your peers then incorporate as you see with the pride flag these uh racial categories uh these progressive economic desires, it's, it's a mess. It's, it's not even a chili pot. It's just a stew of mismatched furniture and <clears throat> old shoes uh, where <laughs> there's, there's nothing obviously keeping these together except some sort of vague cultural Marxism maybe. Uh, that we're going to use all of these elements, the queer politics, um, racial categorization, uh, then, I mean, class, and lump it all together because we have a coalition we think can affect an end we all kind of want, assuming a lot, of course. And Bruce is no, that's not that's not what we wanted in the 70s and 80s. We just wanted to, you know, pair up and be left alone. And that's been pushed far to the back or even out of the coalition entirely. And well, so kind of like libertarianism to that idea too. Like we just want to do our thing and be left alone. And I don't think that the direction that the 
monolith is gone has been an element of libertarianism. It's more like, let me force my ideology down your throat <laughs> in your public schools to your six-year-olds. Yes. Lovely stuff. Really? It is. Uh, so please do go read Bruce's and Matthew's pieces. Uh, probably the best pairing you'll read today. I'm just saying it might be probably is. Uh, so before we leave a little fun thing, uh, Aubrey, what are you reading? What do you think, uh, listeners might be interested in, uh, reading? Yeah. Um, well, so post, I had like post-college syndrome where I like didn't pick up a book for four glorious months. It was wonderful. Um, and, uh, I recently moved to a new apartment and, um, my housemate has, or apartment mate, anyway, has like 30 boxes of books. She owns an insane amount of books. It's great. Um, and so I've been rediscovering my love of children's lit. Uh, so I just finished, I, I managed to plow through two of the Rangers Apprentice books like in one night, which reminds me that like, I can't remember who wrote that series, an Australian author, um, name is not coming to me right now, but he, <laughs> is it's really interesting because um it's very well written the story is kind of repetitive from book to book like this it, the book lacks a great plot but like this is really great writing so yeah I like I don't know if I would recommend those books there are so many better ones but it's been good to be like to like pick up something and just I can read through it in a night and I enjoy it and it's relaxing it has nothing to do with politics, which is amazing. <laughs> oh, blessed relief. Uh, so what do you think is the best children's series of all time? My favorite, and this is going to sound a little cliche, is uh, probably the Anne of Green Gables series. I didn't like the first mm -hmm. book, to be quite honest. Um, but Hot I, take. Okay. I, I know, really. <laughs> but I loved the rest of them. And it, it's probably because I am a young woman and like, it, the, the series just follows like, you know, Anne through her lifetime and then her daughter. Um, and it's just like a really um, accurate and kind of beautiful description of what it is to be a young woman and growing up. Mm. I mean, granted, it was 100 years ago, but there's so many things that like Anne learns that's like, oh, like I can relate to that. And it's well written. It's a beautiful story. Um yeah, I like that's probably my favorite series, which it's funny coming from somebody who goes to Hillsdale, everybody's favorite series is uh Lord of the Rings. But the of little Rings, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was the uh the principal or the headmaster with a monologue in the uh, Anne of Green Gables uh stage production. Oh. <laughs> which I got to speak low and in tone and that's funny. That was great. Yeah, I was playing soccer at the same time. But anyway, uh, that is that's a great pick. I would not have thought of that. Laura Ingalls Wilder, I've always been a fan of. Uh, the Narnia series, hard to beat. Oh, those are good. Currently, I'm reading and listening to good old Moby Dick here. Um, and the greatest line in literature is flask, alas, was a butterless man. And as a Wisconsinite, that just speaks to me on a soul level. 
that uh, my grandma feels naked without five pounds of butter in the freezer at any given time. Uh, and there are great stories about Wisconsinites having to smuggle margarine across the border from Illinois because butter is it, it, it's uh, a hegemon here in Wisconsin. You can't even margarine is not butter. Well, it isn't exactly and so the dairy lobby just like booted margarine out oh i see um, and apparently there's this orange thing that you had to crush in there and it would make the margarine look like butter um by dye but uh anyway butter aside uh moby dick is probably not a children's novel however i did just pick up an entire crate of old archie comics I grew up on Archie Comics. Um, Betty and Veronica were my first loves. And what I've enjoyed most about them is that <laughs> I'm as repetitive and silly as they are, they speak to, again, as Anne might and does, um, coming of age, uh, building your friend group, what healthy relationships look like, honestly. And sure, there's, you know, um, they, they wouldn't say that in Archie comics, but sexual desire and that sort of uh, flowering of um, adolescence, but it's all lighthearted and warm and uh, sort of generous. And I, you don't see that in comics now, uh, that it has to have an edge or it has to have an agenda that I suppose all American Archie was the ultimate American, but it doesn't feel preachy in the same way that uh, current comics do. So if you're at a comic book shop, ask for the old digests. I got them for a dollar a piece. And uh, I think kids and adults would both love them because uh, you can pick it up, put it down. It doesn't matter. And it's just all fun. So uh, with that, we thank you for joining us. Uh, any final thoughts, Aubrey? Not really. Make sure you check out American Spectator at spectator.org. Subscribe if you enjoyed the podcast. Yeah. So uh, for Aubrey, I'm Luther. Thank you for joining us for the first episode of the Spectator PM podcast.